Good evening. I'm very pleased to welcome you to this special Latrobe Asia in conversation event uh, where we will be discussing Dr. Nalan Mehta's recently released book, The New BJP Modi and the Making of the World's Largest Political Party, published by Westland this year. My name is Beck Strading. I'm the director of Latrobe Asia here at Latrobe University in Melbourne. And I would like to begin the event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kool and nation who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. And I would also like to pay my respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who are present uh, this evening. So part of our role here at Latrobe Asia is to engage the public in discussion and debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the Asian region. And to that end, I'm really thrilled to welcome two eminent India experts uh, and members of the Latrobe community uh, to this virtual Latrobe Asia stage for what I am confident will be a rich and insightful discussion. Uh, first, we are joined by Dr. Nalan Mehta. Uh, Trove graduate, but also the Dean of School of Modern Media at UPES, an advisor at Global University Systems and a non-resident senior fellow at the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University, Singapore. Welcome, Nalan. It's really a terrific opportunity for us to discuss uh, your book and the extensive research that you have gathered and collected uh, to publish uh, this book on the BJP in trying to understand how it's become such a dominant force in Indian politics. Uh, and so before uh, I hand over the, the virtual microphone, I just want to uh, offer my congratulations to you on the publication of the book. Thank you, Ian, for holding it up. Uh, available on Kindle or all good bookstores. Uh, but I'd also like to welcome Latrobe's um, lecturer in Hindi studies, Dr. Ian Wolford, uh, a very good friend of ours at Latrobe Asia, uh, and he will be leading the conversation uh, tonight. So welcome, Ian, and you've read uh, the 900 uh, pages very thoroughly. So <laughs> Nalan has some questions. Uh, you've got questions prepared uh, for Nalan this evening, and I'm just really uh, grateful to the both of you um, for for giving you uh, for giving us your your time uh, today. Uh, so, without further ado, Ian, I'm going to pass. Uh, the, the microphone over to you. I will just say that there will be some time for Q&A at the end. So for audience members, please feel free to put your questions in the Q&A box as we work through the discussion. Uh, and I will come back into the uh, back on screen to moderate the Q&A later. But for now, I'm going to hand the hosting reins over to you, Ian. Thank you very much, Beck. It's good to see you. And thank you, um, Nalan, for um, giving us your time today. Um, well, pahale is poster ki publication par aapko bahut bahut badhaiyan aur shubh kamnaye. Vishay to bahut mahatvapurn hai aur gambhir bhi hai. Aur kitni lambi hai ye poster. Lekin sach kehta hoon ki ki parne mein kuch maza aata hai. It was actually quite an enjoyable read. So really congratulations to you on this book. Thank It's you. quite an achievement. Yeah. 
first, look, most of our audience uh, for this interview, uh, I think, is is located outside uh, India. So maybe you could actually just begin by telling us who is the BJP and and how did you find yourself writing a book which weaves um, history, detailed interviews with government officials, and some big data analysis in, into what I can attest is a really engaging 900-odd-page um, volume. So yeah, who is a BJP and how did this project come to be? Um, thanks very much, Ian, uh, for your comments and also to Beck. Uh, delighted to be here. I'm a Latrobe boy, so uh, fantastic to be on a Latrobe platform. Um, the um, uh, Why this book and firstly, why the BJP? The BJP, for those just joining in on India, um, is the ruling party in India. It is the party of Narendra Modi, the current prime minister. It is the party um, uh, which espouses the ideology of Hindu nationalism. Um, which is very different from the ideology of the Congress, which dominated Indian politics from independence till about 10, 15 years ago. Um, it um, uh, represents a new idea of India. Um, um, and in the world's largest democracy, um, the BJP has, um, has pretty much um, won landslide victories in 2019 in the last general election, and also in the previous election before that in 2014. So it's changed um, the, um, the rules of Indian politics um, as we knew it, as I grew up with um, uh, in the years I was growing up in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the 80s, uh, which was an era of coalition politics and not no one party dominating Indian politics in one way and therefore not being able to impose its own ideology in any way. Um, so why this book? Um, it's because... See, I've covered the BJP as a journalist. I mean, I'm an academic and a journalist. I've covered the BJP as a journalist for over 20 years. Um, um, Narendra Modi, uh, particularly, he was a BJP spokesperson long before he became chief minister of Gujarat, which was his last job before he became the prime minister of India. Um, from the late 1990s onwards, I've covered the BJP. Um, the reason why I wrote this book was because um, no matter whether you like the BJP or you hate it, and mostly people, the BJP, uh, uh, people have a very polarizing opinion on it. Mostly we are all prisoners of our, we all have a view of what the BJP stands for, whether it's good for India or bad for India. Um, uh, and, and mostly when you make an argument with the BJP, on the BJP, most people have already pre-decided what their uh, views on that are. The problem for me as a political scientist and as a journalist was that, uh, and this was an individual issue, that since 2014, which is the time when the BJP first came to power by itself uh, in a landslide majority by itself in, in the Indian Republic, the BJP between 2014 and 2019, uh, or, or now until 2022, has won more elections than it has lost, or both at the central and at the provincial level, because India is a federal democracy. Um, and uh, also, in elections where it didn't win, it did better at uh, in those elections than it did before in several states. So why was that happening? That simply could not be happening. That's happening. The core constituency of Hindu nationalism, um, right-wing cultural nationalism, um, is a core constituency of 16, 17, 18%. The BJP's great triumphs with from 2014 onwards to now, um, across a whole host of elections, and again I say they they've won more than they've they've had some significant defeats too, including in Bengal most recently um, last year. Um, um, that 
showed the data showed very clearly that the BJP has been managing since 2014 to attract to itself newer classes of voters, cutting across uh, uh, divides of gender, of caste, of class. Um, and that's what was leading to these victories. The question was, why was that happening? And what was the fulcrum of this shift in the Indian polity? Uh, is it that India was shifting or, is it the, or was it organic or was it the BJP that was doing certain things that was leading to this? That was the primary starting point of this book. Um, let me also say that most books on the BJP, um, um, and with all due respect, um, to me, most books on the BJP either paint the picture of uh, as absolutely um, as a fantastic picture that Narendra Modi is is some kind of a god who has delivered this this whole transformation of the party. You either find hagiographies essentially, or you find extremely critical accounts, um, uh, and both uh, and both have great value. But it didn't. It was not answering to me the question of why are they winning in this manner, um, and that was the genesis of this book. So I therefore wanted to write a non-partisan account. I wanted to put my own thinking and my own views on on ideology aside. Um, to get out of the eco chambers, because many of us, I mean, we are all prisoners of our own eco chambers based on what our positioning on divisive political issues is. And I essentially wanted to answer this question empirically um, in an as non-partisan way as possible. Of course, you were never free of biases. You'll always have unconscious biases too. So what we did was we spent about creating uh, entirely new data sets to understand what was happening. There were three ways that we did research for the book. And it basically came about uh, uh, because sometime around 2017, um, uh, I was playing with some data with, with, with a colleague of mine who's a data scientist based in Singapore. And what the data was showing us was entirely different from what the dominant paradigm in academic writing on the BJP was showing us on the ground, as well as the prominent discourse in the media, uh, in the media was showing. Um, so what we did then was data can often be misleading. Data can also... If you don't get your data sets right, if you don't ask the right questions, if you don't interrogate the data enough, it can also give you a very uh, either a partial picture or a misleading picture. So what we did was we went and traveled um, in Gujarat that year, followed by that that in, uh, followed by Karnataka, which was the Karnataka election of 2018, which was in South India, and then across the Hindi heartland, the five states of the Hindi heartland in North India, which went to elections in 2018 December, and that um, so the idea was let's see what the data is telling us. Then let's go on the ground and interrogate this to see whether this is actually happening on ground or not. And why is it happening? Um, did it actually happen? And why did it happen? And once we tested this model out in across eight or nine different elections over a two-year period, um, I think we knew we needed to explore deeper to write a bigger story of the BJP. I, I must say, Ian, and I'll stop here, 80 to 90% of what is in this book is stuff that I did not know uh, before I started looking at this. And I'm a political junkie. Um, I've followed the BGP for 20 years. I read six newspapers a day um, in two languages. Um, I, I, I'm totally obsessive about Indian politics. And 80 to 90% of the stuff in, in the book, which came out from the empirical research, uh, from the data gathering, from interviews, and from archival work, is stuff I wasn't, uh, uh, it made me rethink a lot of things. Um, no need to stop there. I, I think this is quite fascinating. I, I wish now that we had more time to talk about just what you said about people prejudging um, the BJP and, and also this this notion of echo chambers, um, just as 
I, I mean, you're describing me definitely going into the book, although I don't feel like I was, I'm prejudging. I'm actually judging based on a lot of evidence that's been put um, in front of me. And I don't think you, I mean, you're, you are, an, it's very clear in your book that you're an academic. I don't think you really, do you really think you're a prisoner of, of an echo chamber? I don't get that sense um, from you. And, and um, so, yeah, I, I just, just a comment I wanted to make about that. Maybe we can go back to it. Since you mentioned though, these tools that you develop, maybe could you just describe what these are? Because this was fascinating to me. It, it's the the Mathising Social Index and the Knotted. Uh, that was the 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 data mining software that you have, and you make these tools freely available. I've started playing around with them myself. I thought this was a fascinating tool. So, what are they? How do you use them in this study? So, thanks very much, Ian, for that. And we will come back to the larger questions uh, on the data sets. We created three new. Um, data properties which drove the research for the book. They were made specifically for the research for this book. The first was um, uh, the, met, uh, the Narad Index, um, which what we did was that we put together every single BJP document published between 2006 to 2019, um, and we digitized it. And, we, uh, um, and these are all press releases, party speeches, internal party documents uh, there, uh, um, you know, they have an internal mouthpiece called the Kamal Sandesh, uh, all the stuff in that, uh, the prime minister's speeches over a period of time. So this is all offline literature, right? And we, uh, this is about, so there, there was something like 11,588 uh, documents, 17.9 million words, um, um, speeches, press releases, articles published by their leaders, speeches by the prime minister, uh, We uh, 230 issues of the organizer, which is the mouthpiece of the RSS. Um, about 216 issues uh, over a one-year period of the Vanvasi Kalyan Ashram, um, which works on tribal area in tribal areas, um, uh, which is one of the linked association uh, bodies of the RSS. Um, and we uh, we ran uh, an AI-led software on it to see patterns of discourse which the human eye would not normally see to see what kind of communication the BJP privileges when. Do those patterns remain constant on its core issues, which are issues around Hindu nationalism, or, or does it talk about other things too? In what proportion? When do these proportions change? But equally, how do these proportions vary between different arms of this ecosystem of the right? Uh, does the BJP communicate differently from the RSS and does the Prime Minister communicate differently from the BJP? And also, how does it relate to the Congress, which is the main opposition party? So that was purely about seeing communication patterns. That was one. We also, by the way, tracked the social media accounts of 75 political leaders across India, across political uh, divisions, Congress um, and uh, BJP um, over a two-year or a three-year period. Um, all their Twitter posts, all their Facebook posts. Um, and we also uh, um, uh, saw patterns in that. So we, could, we were seeing both offline communication and online and seeing that. The second uh, was uh, the Mehta Singh Index. Uh, which I constructed uh, with my colleague Sanjeev Singh. Uh, he's the Singh in the Mehta Singh Index. Um, uh, and that basically was because a lot of Indian politics is based on caste. Um, the, the dominant paradigm in academic scholarship on the BJP essentially portrays the BJP um, as an upper caste urban-based party, which is uh, which is the uh, the caricature of the BJP, which is which was largely true until a few years back. Um, however, what I was finding on, on the ground when we were traveling and anecdotally and so on, this caricature of the BJP and this 
data. Uh, so, for example, the, the people who, uh, who run this, the only people who do these data sets of representation are the Ashoka University, um, uh, the Trivedi Center for uh, Political Data at Ashoka University, which is done along with Christoph Jafferlow at Sciences Po and King's College. The data sets that they had were showing something which was not squaring with what was happening on the ground, but there was a data set. So what we did was that we said, let's look at this afresh. Let's look at a, let's do a revisionist view of this. Let's create a new data set and let's look at this. Let's throw everything out, out, out and let's create a brand new data set. What we did was we looked at 4,415 politicians across, a, um, across um, three decades of politics in Uttar Pradesh. So we tracked uh, from 1991 to 2019 every single uh, across four parties, the BJP, uh, the Congress, the Samajwadi Party, uh, and the Bhaujan Samajwadi, part, Bhaujan Samajwadi Party, which is the party of the Dalits, we tracked every single candidate they fielded uh, in every single election in UP over, uh, um, uh, over uh, from 1990, 1991 to 2019 um, so, uh, in, in Lok Sabha, in the Lok Sabha polls. Um, after that, we extended that analysis and we said, okay, uh, you know, what they feel in parliament, UP is the most populated state in India. It feels the largest contingent in the upper house, in the lower house of parliament, 80 Lok Sabha members, 80 members of parliament. So we track every member of parliament. They fielded for election for, for, for parliamentary elections over a 30 year period. But then we said, look, this is, this is only, it can be partial. So we, then we tracked every member of uh, every candidate. They fielded all these four parties in provincial elections in 2017. And then we track the office bearers of these parties, the cast of these office bearers, and we track the, the people they appoint as ministers in the state um, over the last 10 years. And then we compared the casts of all of these people. And that is what the Mehta Singh Index was, to see how patterns of representation of different castes have evolved at different levels of political representation, from the people who parties field in elections the people they give positions of power to, as in they share the spoils of power with when, when they win elections, to see, is that constant over time? Have they changed? How has the BJP changed? And, in, and importantly, how are they changed in, in relation to people it's fighting against, uh, which are caste-based parties, SP and BSP are caste-based parties in particular, or the parties of social justice. Uh, so that was the second one, the Mehta Singh Index. And the third one was Paul Niti where we put together uh, 218 different dashboards of huge amounts of data across political economy, including from how many shoes are being sold in the economy on a daily basis to, uh, to mobile phone, data consumption, everything, economic indicators. So there were eight economic data, data dashboards, about 100 constituency level um, uh, data dashboards and a, a whole bunch of social media indicators. We put them together, we called it Pol Niti, and that again allowed us to see patterns. So for example, one of the things we did was we used satellite imagery uh, in the Northeast. Uh, um, satellite imagery from we tracked from 2005 to 2019 to see, to track nightlight data, which is often can be used as a proxy for economic development, and there's a whole economic uh, debate around that, um, to, um, how nightlights in the Northeast have changed. Uh, because the BJP often claims that people vote for us because we, we brought in substantive changes. So we've used some of the non-governmental data like, like this one to cross-check and triangulate what the government was saying. If, if I could just emphasize a couple of things you said, um, just so that make sure that everyone is really clear that a lot of the findings that, that you get from using these tools really do um, run counter to what 
scholarly consensus has been in the past about um, the make of the BJP and, and BJP supporters. So it's really worth looking at. The other thing I just wanted to stress, even though you're talking about very technical uh, use of data and using AI and all this, and it might sound very technical. Um, if anyone is looking to read the book, you actually present in a very readable uh, format. So uh, I just wanted to, to, to let people know that. Um, I'd love to sort of go back to this. There's a lot here, um, but uh, I just, in terms of how you use this, these tools, um, well, the manner in which you detail how India's Muslims are excluded um, from the BJP, I, I really found the implications of your analysis, I mean, this is an area I'm already very troubled about, but I found the implications of, of the material you present to be quite uh, terrifying, Nalan, for the, the prospects for, for basic democratic values. And it's a question you pose at the end of the book and leave open. This is clearly something you're thinking about. I wonder if you could just address how these tools that you use and your interviews and historical analysis, what do they tell us about the place of Muslims under the, the new BJP from your title? And maybe you could also just, uh, you could uh, add into this your, your findings regarding why the BJP does surprisingly well in districts of, of UP that have relatively large Muslim populations. This was really interesting and also troubling for me. Thanks. So um, two things. Uh, before I answer that, it's a good question to ask, and I'll, I will answer that. Um, there, you mentioned the conclusion where I do raise this at the end. There's also a chapter on Muslims which you mentioned. Um, see, um, uh, the, for a long time, the liberal assumption has been that the BJP is winning because there has been because in because of the Hindu nationalist wave that India is turning more and more Hindu nationalist, right? Um, what and, and the BJP was uh, uh, largely, like I said, the caricature was right. For a long time, the BJP was a, an upper caste dominated party. It was the party of, of urban areas. It didn't have, have, have a rural uh, stake. And the BJP has espoused Hindu causes or Hindutva causes, uh, uh, let me be more correct in this, uh, uh, ever since uh, for a long time, especially since the Ram, Ram Jan movie movement. Now, what? why am I calling this the new BJP? The title of the book is the new BJP. This new BJP that I'm talking about is very different from that old BJP. What this book shows is that the reason why the BJP has won more elections than it has lost since 2014 or done better in those elections than it ever did before is fundamentally because it created an entirely new constituency of voters. And who were these new voters who came to it? The first, the, firstly, the BJP became in the Hindi heartland largely the predominant party of, 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 rural, of rural India. And here I'm talking specifically of the 10 Hindi-speaking states of North India, right? Um, and there is a lot of data um, in the book about that, on, 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 on that, how it became the primary pole of politics, not just that it's winning, that it became the primary fulcrum of all politics uh, in these rural areas. It's expand, it didn't lose the urban areas. It's not like it just shifted from urban support base to rural support base. It, 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 it became, it retained its urban support, it expanded into semi-urban areas, and then significantly in rural areas, it became the primary dominant pole of the, of, the, of the polity. Why did that happen? It happened because of three reasons. And, and, and the Muslim question here, which you asked, is, 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 the fourth, is the fourth pole of that answer. The first is, the BJP expanded from being an upper caste party to becoming the most socially representative party by caste in UP uh, and largely in the Hindi heartland, except for Muslims, right? Um, and by that, I mean 
that as you know ian um the bjp again just has expanded from urban areas to rural and semi urban areas while keeping the urban support base it kept its up its upper caste support base which was the brahmin banya support base it used to be called a brahmin banya party but it fundamentally became a party of obcs of other backward classes after 2014 um an entirely new lot of voters and families came into the bjp post 2014 who were non yadav obcs in up and non jadav dalits largely because and this is important because um see since the mid early 90s india uh, um there has been indian politics has been defined by by a lot of the parties of social justice the parties who came out of the politics of reservation and what was called the mandal commission the bsp was the party of the dalits the um, samajwadi party in up was the party of the yadavs and, and of uh, uh, and of other backward what the constitution of india defines as other backward classes and for those who don't know india for 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 castes and classes for whom jobs are reserved uh, in government positions and education is also education seats in education also reserved what the bjp did was that these parties often became uh, over a period of time the samajwadi party became the party of yadavs which is one among 75 other obc class classes in up the 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 bsp became the party of dalits uh, became the party of jatavs which is one among the many subclasses of, of dalits what the bjp came and went and told these people was that look um we are an, we were an upper caste party but we you don't have really you are you are voting for all these other parties but you are not really getting a share in the in the tent beyond voting for them come to us we'll give you a share now you can pull this trick once you can talk the talk once what's happened is that once the, what this book shows is that bjp didn't just talk that talk when these people started voting for the bjp many of these newer classes um the bjp gave them a share of power and the data in the book shows how Uh, at different levels of representation in his leadership structures um in its um, governance structures in his ministerial council of ministers and so on and so forth and that is why in this election of up now these changes are not irreversible they can be reversed but these elections of up in 2022 show that far from reversing or weakening the classes the newer classes and castes that came to the bjp this process of them remaining with the bjp has become even deeper its roots have been taken more uh, 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 have become stronger in fact the vote base for the bjp in these classes actually increased in 2022 the second thing i want to add the bjp also added a very significant new women factor women in india have and rural women in india in particular have never voted for the bjp uh, until recently um in large numbers compared to the congress because they are the only two really comparable national parties what the beach since the 60s when the um uh, um when the election commission started giving us gender based division of of how india has voted uh, there's always been for many years a 12 13% difference in uh, between male voters and women voters and historically while well uh, uh, men voted significantly more than women the women who voted largely voted much more for congress and much less for bjp at the among the two national parties since the early 2000s that gap started narrowing but what happened in 2019 was that in 2019 was the first election in indian history where the women turnout was slightly more than the male turnout for voters and in precisely that election where women were voting more than men 
in most of the key states of the northern of the Hindi heartland, which give you the maximum number of seats, uh, the voting percentage of women for BJP was higher than for any other party. So it was being driven by a gender vote. Uh, and this is the creation of a new women constituency. And this was significantly rural. And this is very counterintuitive because some of the greatest opposition to the BJP uh, is led by women leaders in, in cities. If you think back to the protests around CAA, uh, the Citizenship Amendment Act, you think back to the protests around the National uh, Register of Citizenship, in many cities of India, some of the biggest protests were led by women's movements, which were urban. So to say that um, that women are now voting for the BJP in, in rural areas significantly more is counterintuitive and it goes entirely against the grain of academic work of BJP so far. But that's what the evidence shows us. And there are reasons why this happened. And the book shows reasons why that happened. And I, we can talk about that separately. The third thing that happened is that um, the BJP has built um, a huge infrastructure or the government of the BJP has built at the national level um, a huge infrastructure of direct benefit transfers. See, every government spends money on development. Some do better, some do worse. Um, the BJP has not increased the spending on development. The, number, the spending on development is very similar to what previous patterns of development were. What it has done is that it has benefited from the creation of, uh, um, of a new architecture for delivering that welfare spending directly into people's wallets through the mobile phone. Because um, this has come through a combination of the, the, the mobile phone revolution of India, which has been documented very well by scholars from, uh, from Latrobe, uh, Professor Robin Jeffrey um, and uh, Professor Sadaron, who's now at ANU. Um, this combined with the revolution of cheap data, India has the highest data consumption per capita consumption rate in the world compared to North America or Europe or any other, any other region of the world since 2015. Combined with the cheap mobile phone and cheap data and the creation of the Aadhaar system of biometric identity, which by the way was a subject of huge controversy and huge debate, was only enabled uh, because of a judgment by the Supreme Court of India. Uh, and by the way, was the idea of the previous government, not Narendra Modi's uh, uh, government. What happened was that the Manmohan Singh government, which preceded Narendra Modi's last government, um, they pioneered the idea of direct benefit transfers after a huge debate between the different factions of the government. They tested it out in about 51 districts to begin with. The testing started on the 1st of January 2013. The first seven, eight months of the testing was a disaster. So, But by the time they ironed out the, the chinks in that delivery system, the national elections happened and the BJP, uh, the Congress lost power. The BJP comes into power. The, Narendra Modi's um, great political maneuver at that time on policy was, he had opposed much of this system before when he was chief minister of Gujarat. But in 2014, Narendra Modi, after a meeting with the head of the UIA, DIA, which is Nandan Nilekani of uh, Infosys, who had built that whole system, they decided to double down on this. And they decided to give it full political backing. And the numbers are really interesting. Huh? The numbers are in 2013-14, and this includes the period of Manmohan Singh and Congress regime as well as Modi, 28 national schemes were part of direct benefit transfers. By 2018-19, that number had become 434, which is a 15-fold increase. In terms of money spent, the money went up from in 13-14 from 7,300 crores to 2.14 lakh crores, which is a increase of 29 times. If you add benefits and 
kind, it becomes a 49 times increase. And if you look at the number of beneficiaries, individual beneficiaries, that went up from 10.8 crore at that time to 76.3 crore, which is a seven-time increase. Now, these direct benefits, as opposed to building roads or dams or hospitals or, or you know, what is conventionally seen as development, by putting money pe- in, into people's pockets directly um, through their mobile phone wallets, uh, uh, through uh, the creation of, of a mobile phone and what, what was then called Jandan, it, I think, helped the BJP mitigate the, after, the, the great discontent of many of, uh, uh, of the problems we've seen in the last two, three years around the coronavirus, around issues around the economy, so on and so forth. Now, where does that leave Muslims? Coming back to your question. Um, in this period, in 14, in 17, and 19, most people think that uh, do um, um, Hindus, um, in terms of Hindu and Muslim voting, India has very significant proportions of Muslim voters in, in several states. Uh, Assam is one state. The Moon Kashmir is another state, now not a state, now a union territory after the abrogation of Article 370. UP is another state. The BJP has been in power in UP in Assam now, uh, which is the highest proportion of, 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 uh, of uh, minorities by, pro- by proportion uh, now for two consecutive terms. Right In UP, it is just one, two consecutive terms. Um, in UP, the triumph that Yogi Adityanath's government has had now is historic for Syphological reasons. Um, and it is completely out of whack with the historical trend. And why do I say that? I say that because it is the first time since independence that a sitting chief minister in UP has returned to power. Uh, in the days of Congress dominance, the Congress returned to power, but each time with a different chief minister. The sitting chief minister didn't return to power. Um, the last time a sitting government returned to power was 37 years ago. And the last time that a that a government which is one uh, that that a party that wins power in UP in a state election got over forty percent of the vote was in nineteen fifty five or in the late fifties. So now this triumph comes on the back of a huge farmers agitation which we all saw which created headlines around the world. It comes on the back of agitations around the CA and NRC, and it comes around the back of questions around minorities, right? And it comes on the back of great economic distress. Now you still have this victory. Now, one of the reasons why you have this victory is for the reasons I pointed out before, because you created newer classes of voters, which is women, which is other uh, castes and classes which never were in your tent. You created a new social coalition, which is largely rural and is largely of castes that were never with you before. Um, in the Muslim areas of UP and in the Hindi heartland, the data is very clear. Um, the BJP wins more seats than it loses, right? It also gets more vote share often than other parties. That is not because Muslims are voting more for the BJP. That is significantly because of counter counter polarization. So what happens often in minority dominated areas, um, and we mapped several of them in Uttar Pradesh and in the Hindi heartland, you look at both UP, you look at the Hindi heartland in general, across the last seven or eight years, BJP has been winning much more in these seats than before. Uh, or uh, it's not. I mean, it's it's a it's a dominant player in, in in these in these seats. Why is that? Because many other parties put up, uh, which is if you look at the B, in UP, you'd look at BSP, SP, Congress. They would often put up a Muslim candidate. The Muslim uh, vote is typically forty to fifty percent, depending on constituency to constituency, from thirty percent to sixty percent, depending on constituency, um, and that gets split. But what happens is that in areas where there are large Muslim populations, the Hindu vote is consolidated and the BJP often ends up winning. That's one. Second, 
what the bjp has done is that the bjp often used to put up token muslim candidates so um it knew it would not get the muslim vote um by the way uh, the election data from the last election shows that 8 to 9% of muslims did vote for the bjp largely these were women and that women vote came after the abolition of uh, of triple talaq which was also a very controversial legislation which was passed by parliament uh, to end triple talaq right um uh, which which is 7 to 8% uh, uh, vote uh, by the csds surveys shows that in this up election but that's not why the bjp is winning largely more in muslim areas it's winning because of counter mobilization what the bjp has done as a political device is that um see the bjp from the 19 early 1990s um in the era of coalition politics often played what was often did what was politic politically correct it was much more defensive about being positioned as the party of hindutva and therefore it would always field one or two candidates who were muslims right uh, the bjp by the way has always had muslim representation in its highest leadership in fact the three people who wrote the bjp constitution in 1980 when it was set up as a as the party in its current avatar one of them was sikandar bakht um uh, was muslim um the 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 what the bjp did was that from in in the 2017 vidhan sabha polls of up it did not field a single muslim candidate out of 403 assembly constituencies in the lok sabha election of 2019 in up out of 80 seats it also did not field a single muslim candidate um it won the majority of these seats it won a landslide uh, in 2022 in up also it did not field a single muslim candidate though one of its allies did field a muslim candidate it also won a landslide now here is uh, something which uh, which i think what the data tells us is a lot of um, there was a lot of criticism of the move to remove uh, to not field muslim candidates right did the uh, by the way in both the lok sabha and in vidhan sabha the bjp did make muslim ministers after winning power even though it had not fielded a single muslim candidate so in vidhan sabha in up yogatnath appointed a muslim minister uh, in the previous regime also in this one in uh, in the narendra modi's cabinet uh, you have muktar abbas naqvi the minister of minority sure. yeah. is that enough no uh, um but the bjp didn't feel both of them are by the way politicians from up so what i want to say is between 90, early 90s to the early 2000s it's not like the bjp was fielding significantly larger numbers of muslims when it made a huge shift it was only fielding one or two candidates it was only doing the politically correct thing of ticking a box by saying i fielded one person who is muslim it was tokenism from a political point of view right uh, because it was not giving muslims representation in a way muslim percentage is much higher it was giving fielding one candidate will not make make you representative what it did was in um 2017 it did away with the tokenism it decided that the tokenism is hurting us and politically we will not do the tokenism rightly or wrongly it did that and the result was that it won more seats it it won in those muslim areas and and in and in other constituencies as well so what did that tell the bjp do more of this and therefore they repeated that in 2019 and also in 2022
and this is something you showed quite well in the book and you've covered a lot here. I do want to let everyone know that everything you've, you've mentioned here are, these are arguments you explore in, in detail. Um, I think we have a few scholars of gender here who might, might uh, be interested to speak with you about your um, surprise over how, how women are, are both the, the leading critics of, of the, uh, the BJP, but also are, are voting for the BJP in more numbers. I think uh, scholars of gender have quite a bit to say about uh, women's roles in, in ethno-nationalist movements. Um, a lot you've said there, I, I want to bring back to your book and the things you've said, though. Following on from this, the when you talk about um, Hindutva ideology, and, and you mentioned here the phrase you had was the BJP, the, the most socially inclusive except for Muslims, and this is a phrase that you have in your book uh, as well, so you do address this head on. But when you look at your discussion of Hindutva ideology, you you go out of your way to say that the the way that Hindutva is is uh, deployed by the RSS and the BJP, and you acknowledge they're they're different now, but the way they're deployed today are different uh, than Hindutva as it was defined in the 1920s by um, Savarkar and others. Uh, and I wanted to pick your brain about this a bit more because I I don't know if I agree with this. It seems like even in um, even with Savarkar, there did seem to be room for. Uh, your point was that the the, the Hindutva now Hindutva now is more accommodating of Muslims than it wasn't in the past. My sense was with Savarka, there was still a place for Muslims within India if they were so-called good Muslims who acknowledged the Hinduness mm. of Bharat. And what I get from from your data and the way you show this is is you say that it's a softer version now almost. I think that's a phrase you use, or you might remember it better, a softer version of Hindutva or. Um, what I see something more alarming is is a uh, again from from the data you show is the axis has shifted off of Hindu versus Muslim to to more of um, uh, the the way anyone who doesn't subscribe to the ideology of the Hinduness of Bharat of India can be described as anti-India as an urban nuptial right and then be therefore be placed outside the nation outside the protection of the law. This is why we see a situation where we have these, what we know are illegal bulldozers in Jahangirpuri being deployed against impoverished Muslims, but also the alarming harassment and violence against not just Muslims, but anyone who doesn't subscribe to this um, ideology. So given this ongoing violence, and again, I'm taking this just from little pieces that you have, why is it that you wanted to put forth this argument that the RSS, the BJP, that their version of Hindutva is somehow softer, somehow different? Why was it important for you to frame it this way? Okay, so um, to be clear, I'm not making a value judgment on whether BJP, RSS views on, on uh, I don't represent the RSS. I'm not a spokesperson for them. And I certainly am I'm not an ideologue. Uh, uh, I'm not judging their uh, um, uh, the registers of change for RSS. What I'm doing is documenting what they are saying themselves to show that there is a trajectory of change in their own discourse, right? We did not, I mean, for example, Jangir Puri that you mentioned, the bulldozers you mentioned, all of those have happened now in 2022, including in the, in the Yogi Adhanath government. Now, that chapters which are specific to the RSS are specific to RSS um, communications uh, for, as, uh, as espoused by the officials, uh, spokespeople, um, and in press conferences and speeches and so on and so forth. Now, what do I mean when I say that um, the RSS has changed its registers? What I meant was that, very simply, um, are there issues around, for example, you mentioned Jangir Puri, 
there were also ram navi ram navi uh, processions where there was violence just a few days back there was also the issue of hijab in karnataka which which which, which led to uh, uh, a lot of debate around question of secularism and communalism there was also uh, the um, the debate on chatka meat versus halal meat in karnataka i've just come back from karnataka uh, speaking to a whole bunch of politicians from the congress and from the bjp trying to figure out what really was happening here right uh, is it um uh, uh, uh was it uh, are, uh, uh, why are uh, leaders not acting on this why are these statements being made uh, what, what is the pattern of reaction and counter reaction that you are seeing the the chapter in the book which talks about the rss ideology is very specific to the works published by rss leaders and what do i show what i show is very simple uh fundamentally um for golwalkar who was the sarsanchalak of the uh, rss the second sarsanchalak uh who um who wrote we or our nationhood defined um in um, 1939 um uh, which 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 first came out soon after he became uh, the sarsanchalak uh, and succeeded um um, uh, um hegdevar um that book has got very specific things around uh hindus and muslims and Mus- and the fatherland uh, uh, those whose fatherland is outside this country and so on and so forth um what the rss did and this has been documented and that's what the book shows in uh, in some in 2006 the rss officially disowned that book now i'm not saying that changes what's hap- uh, that changes the fact that there's violence on the ground and there are people who are extremist uh, i don't take extreme position on various things what i'm saying is academically it's important to note that not only did the rss disown that book they issued a press release for it they hold held a whole press conference to announce why they are disowning this book and what did they say they said we are disowning it now you know you believe them whether this was or not that's a different question i'm documenting what they said what did they say they said we are disowning it for two reasons one that this book is not golwalkar's views it's actually a translation of mimansa which is a book written by gd savarkar who was vd savarkar's brother uh, in marathi um this is actually a translation of that the book was actually rashtriya mimansa which means nation worship one two uh, and for a long time it was seen as the work of golwalkar but later on he, he said that actually it wasn't my work it was the work of of gd savarkar i only translated it second that it represented his views before he became the head of the rss now that's a that they said this is a matter of fact whether you believe whether they buy this or not is is a matter of opinion which everybody you know you can believe them or or this that opinion the second was there was another book um by the uh, rss uh, by golwalkar which is bunch of thoughts which also contained several things which are often quoted in every article on the rss the rss in 2018 also disowned uh, significant parts of bunch of thoughts publicly in fact the um, our, the current rss head manmohan bhagwat did a press conference in delhi met a whole bunch of journalists and intellectuals and specifically talked about this now i think it's important to document that and and say that now does it mean that there are issues which the rss is not supporting on the ground with people have problem with no but they are saying this right so what all i'm saying is that the ideologically in terms of the in terms of what they are saying there has been a shift in religious i think it's not just interesting that they were disowning it they were publicly going out and saying it and by the way they were not saying it in the time of coalition era they are saying it today when narendra modi is in power when the bjp is in power right um so that's one second on the question of uh, minorities 
uh, you look at the Vijay Dashmi speeches of uh, the Sarsang Chalak. Uh, this is almost like uh, uh, annual speeches. The RSS often doesn't speak publicly at all. Um, um, but this, uh, on Vijay Dashmi on Dishera every year, as you know, the head of the RSS gives a speech. Uh, for the last three or four years, or almost five years now, the Sarsang Chalak has been specifically talking on the question of minorities um, and saying what is acceptable to the RSS in its worldview and what is not. What I have done is simply documented what they are saying. And there is a nuance in that, in that, in the utterances of that ideology, which is different from what was written in the 1920s and 30s. Is that replicating itself on the ground or not is a different question. I'm simply looking at the narrative, the official narrative and the shift in that, in those chapters. Thank you very much for answering that, Nalan. I think we're about to hand thing, things back over to Beck for the, the Q&A. There's some time for that. If no one minds, so I'd like to address one question that's come up in the Q&A. This is from Mr. Ravi Bhatia, who says that it's just Ian who wants to focus on religion and probably caste, as he always does. Um, I should let Ravi know, and, and Nalan, I hope you, you would understand I asked these questions because you had entire chapters on them. This was uh, an important part of your book. You, you, you developed entire digital tools to, to look at this because of these are some of the most pressing uh, issues of the, of the day. So I really thank you for looking in that, at, at these, but these aren't things that I'm bringing up. These are things that were right there in the, uh, in, in the book. I, it was important to me that we engage with the actual book um, that you've written, not the book that we wish you had. So, so that's why I focus. So can I say, can I say, Ian, that there are in at the end of the book. Um, look, the um, the book is very specific to answering why is the BJP doing politically better than it has, and it is doing politically better because more Indians are voting for it for exactly. reasons beyond Hindutva. What I'm trying to say is the BJP is not a one-trick pony. It has got several reasons and several registers on why more people are coming to its side. I'm not, can it, is it reversible? Yes, it is reversible. Uh, so I'm saying the core constituency of Hindutva has not expanded. What has expanded is newer classes of people who's coming in. Also what has expanded is that for a lot of people, so in fact, one of the guys in the book, uh, one of the key uh, officials from the BJP, uh, he said, uh, he said, uh, uh, and I quoted him, um, he said, Hindutva, is not Hindutva gives a speed, he said in Hindi. Hindutva hume gati deta hai, lekin paya welfare. Uh, Hindutva gives a speed, but the wheel is welfare. Um, and I think the reason why more and more BJP government, I think we need to look very closely at why. See, you can win an election on an emotional roller coaster when religious passions are inflamed, um, but can you win it again after you've been in power on that same question? When people's livelihoods have been affected in the way we have seen with the coronavirus, our economy has just come, the GDP has just come now to the same size that it was before the first lockdown happened in 2020, right? You've had the highest levels of inflation uh, of uh, WPI and consumer index uh, in the last, since uh, in the last year, year and a half. And it is going to be, there's going to be more pain coming with the Ukraine, Ukraine crisis. What I'm saying is, if you have to, whether you like the BJP or you hate it, you have to understand what it's doing on the ground to win. Uh, people say, I, I keep hearing this, oh, this is just an election machine. Uh, you know, uh, this it's, it, they, what they're creating is an election machine. But I'm sorry, the election machine is made of people. You can't just switch a button at the, two months before election and some machine comes up and people automatically vote. There is something else that is happening. The reason why the election machine works is because other things are happening beyond Hindutva. Hindutva is definitely giving power to the BJP, but is not the only reason why it's winning. 
that's one the the last point i do want to say is that the book concludes with five challenges for the bjp um because that's important the first is the economy um and i can speak at length about it the second um, i think is the question of leadership which is what after modi right the one of the challenges of course is the question of the hindu muslim divide how does the bjp deals with these questions going forward um, um on social strife and, and so on and so forth that's fundamentally important um, and there are two other challenges also there are also two uh, two um uh, i mean one of the challenges is that when you create such a social coalition uh, among among hindus who come into your tent you are basically like what the congress was in the 50s minus muslims in terms of a social coalition right when everybody is in your tent then they will uh, newer classes of people will will jostle for more for more share of the spoils of power how do you deal with that in madhya pradesh for example you looked at what happened in madhya pradesh um, one of the things the book shows is that in madhya pradesh over 60% of the ministers in shivraj singh chauhan's cabinet were from the rss when jyotiradit sindhya defected from the congress and came over to this side the rss proportion of that council of ministers went down to 25% roughly and and the congress guys were given given ministerial portfolios the bjp does this very well uh, which other parties don't do by mergers and acquisitions the entire expansion of northeast which is largely a uh, uh, northeast of the seven northeastern states are largely christian states um assam has got the highest proportion of muslims uh, by proportion um, the other states are 60 to 70 to 80% christian how is the bjp winning there in most of those states um because it is doing a policy of mergers and acquisitions as explained in the book what i'm saying is the bjp in different states is a different animal it's i think it's misleading to see it as just a one trick pony it operates differently uh, at levels of political mobilization than what one would think as a caricature and again i want to stress to everyone that we've really only scratched the even the topics it sound like we've talked about in depth we've barely scratched the surface of the detail that nalin goes into uh, in in the book it's uh, really quite something beck if you're still here um i'm going to hand things over to you and i'll thank nalin myself for for answering the questions they have and beck i'll turn it over to you for the q and a Thank you Ian and Nalan. It's it's not often in a La Trobe Asia event I get to sit and watch um such a, a fascinating discussion uh without having to to be sort of moderating the events myself. So um I feel really privileged to um have watched that exchange and to to learn a lot from your book and your research Nalan. Uh we only have about 5 minutes left. I hope you don't mind if we do go a little bit over just to get some questions in because there is a lot of questions in the Q&A which I think just demonstrates how engaging the discussion and the research is. Um so the first one I might ask three uh and then hand it back to you Nalan. Um the first one is is one of the questions that I had while I was I was listening to this. Um so I'm glad to see it in the Q&A box and it's how can we take um what the BJP says about their ide- ideology and their official narrative on face value um shouldn't we critically examine their official narrative based on what they actually do and not just what they say um there's a cup there's a, there's a few there's a lot of questions in here um I'll go back up to one that caught my eye in the Q&A um the second one that I would like to ask is why is the BJP attacking and imprisoning academics, intellectuals and journalists in India today? Uh what are they afraid of? And the third question 
was about technology. Um, technology all over the world has been increasingly deployed to push extremist, fundamentalist, racist and misogynistic ideas. Has the BJP not done exactly the same through its armies of trolls? And if it has, is this justified? Um, so I know I've given you a lot of <laughs> questions there, Narlin, but wondering, um, you know, that one of the things that brings these questions together is a bit of a scepticism about BJP policies uh, and rhetoric. So I'm wondering whether you can respond to these. Right. So uh, thanks. I mean, we could spend another hour answering each one of these questions, uh, leave alone five uh, or four. Um, the first one, um, I'm not saying at all that that take what BGP is saying at face value. Of course not. Um, just like anything else in the public domain, um, I think voters, I, I don't think, by the way, any voter takes what BGP says at face value. I think voters look at what they are saying and they make their choices. Um, their choices are, the evidence shows, different from what many liberal intellectuals think they should be. Uh, and that's why we think that, you know, they're just buying out like a sinker. Are these voters stupid? I don't think they're stupid. Um, uh, I think people vote for a, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, cultural identity is one of them, but I don't think it's the only one. I certainly don't think it's the predominant one uh, for which they vote. Um, that's one. Two, uh, on the question of the BJP's uh, discourse, um, look, make no mistake. I'm not saying that the BJP is soft peddling things or not. It's not. In fact, the big difference with the new BJP of post-2014 and the old BJP of Vajpayee and Advani is that this BJP is unapologetic about Hindutva in a way that Vajpayee's BJP was not. Right? It's that's Let's be clear about that. But what the Narad Index says, let me explain, uh, let me be clear on this is, it says, what are the core issues of the BJP? The core issues, which have always been defined as the core issues, um, Kashmir, terrorism, the Ram Temple, um, the Uniform Civil Code. These were traditionally seen as the four core issues of the BJP, which made the BJP anathema or, or uh, to most other political parties in the 90s when the BJP was looking for allies, when it wasn't big enough to form governments of its own. And the BJP watered down its commitments to many of these to form coalition governments, right? This BJP has doubled down on this. This BJP is completely unapologetic. Article 370, gone by, by a constitutional amendment. Um, Ram Temple built after 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 a uh, um, five zero judgment by the way by the Supreme Court of India uh, whether one agrees with that judgment or not um, um, uh, on the question of, of uniform civil court it's not there yet but a, a law on, on triple talaq was passed right what I'm saying is what the Narad index so I'm not saying at all that the BJP has softened its narrative in some way in fact it is doubled down and become hardline. Uh, on its its absolutely core to what it's been saying on these core issues. What I am saying is that in the what Narad Index showed us is that the BJP is not just talking about this. I had thought as somebody who observed the BJP, because if you see the television channels of India, the, the primetime debates, um, those which are left and those which are right, and mostly they are right. Um, there are very few which are left. Um, and if you see the newspaper headlines, you will think the BJP is only talking about these issues. And because that is what dominates the headlines. What the Narada Indus surprised me with was that this was just one small sliver of its communications. What it was doing was in the top five issues, for example, Modi's among the top five issues he talks about is about women outside of any of this. Um, issues around development, issues around farmers, they are in the top five. In fact, the most important thing the BJP speaks about is the Congress, even more than Modi. 
where in its communications over the last five years, from 2016 in particular, the BJP has spoken more about the Congress as the ruling party, which is unusual for a ruling party to speak so much about the opposition party, more than it has even spoken about Modi. So, so it speaks. So, and and the the divisive issues, which are the one which I pointed out just now, those make no mistake. It is not. It is not backing off on those. It is speaking on those very aggressively. But in terms of the volume of what it's saying. It is what I'm saying is it's it has got different things it says to different audiences, including on farmers. One of the reasons why you've not had a farmer upsurge of the kind that the protest seemed to signify, which were on a television screen all the time, is because the BJP has done huge communications to farmers um, uh, over the last five years, which mitigated the impact of much of this. Where were the farmer agitation? It was largely in Punjab. It was largely in western parts of UP and Haryana. It did. It, it did. There were many organizations of many states, but there was no mass movement. Of, of the kind that we saw in Punjab, where it became a real uh, uh, problem and it became an issue of izzat and of pride that you have to withdraw these, these laws uh, or it became parts of Western UP. In other parts, in Karnataka, in Maharashtra, some of the biggest farmer movements did not support the agitation. Right? So what I'm saying is there's a lot of communication the BJP does, differentiated messaging to other audiences which are outside of its issues of cultural nationalism and we miss that. And, and that is a major reason why when election results come in these classes or these particular categories of voters vote, vote for the BJP, we get surprised. Because we think it's a one-trick pony, it's only saying about one thing. It's not. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying agree with what it's saying. I'm not saying accept what it's saying. No, that everybody will make their own judgment on, uh, on what the BJP is saying. Well, thank you so much. I'm afraid that we are out of time and I'm very apologetic in that we've got so many questions in the Q&A box, which uh, we won't be able to get to uh, tonight, but I think that we will have to have you back for another event, Nalan, so that we can go through some of the other issues that have been raised uh, in the Q&A uh, section. But uh, thank you, Nalan, and thank you, Ian, for um, for that really insightful discussion. Congratulations again, Nalan, on the publication of your book. Uh, it's, a, you know, obviously a, a significant achievement uh, and you've done uh, an exceptionally large amount of research to produce this book. So uh, thank you. Uh, and, of course, uh, you're both members of the Latrobe community, so we're delighted to feature you here um, tonight. I would also like to thank our audience, as always, for joining us for this event and for uh, the excellent questions that, that you put forward. It's always great to see an audience that is thoroughly engaged in the discussion. Our next scheduled Latrobe Asia webinar, webinar is actually this Thursday, 28th of April, where Professor Dewey Fortuna Anwar will be launching our seven-week Indonesia in Focus academic seminar series. She'll be sitting down with me to discuss Indonesian foreign policy and bilateral relations with Australia. So please follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more details for online events uh, and Latrobe Asia publications. But thank you again, Nalan, and thank you, Ian. Thanks thank very, you much. very much. Uh, thank, thank you, Ian.